Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Many Earth's gentleman detective John Madden investigates complex multiple murders in a Britain in turmoil during and after two world wars. It's a series that includes serial killer cases long before the phrase serial killer was ever invented. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Rennie talks about having lunch with his hero Graham Greene and why he learnt more from writing a bad book than a good one. But before we talk to Rennie, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Rennie's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Rennie. Hello there, Rennie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. It's very nice to be talking to you, Jenny. Now, look, I always like to start with this question because it seems appropriate for storytellers to begin at the beginning and ask, was there a, a kind of once upon a time moment, a catalyst moment when you thought to yourself, if I don't get round to writing fiction now, I'm never going to do it. And if there was a moment like that, what was the catalyst for it? Yes, that's an interesting question. Well, I actually always, always, I think, wanted to write fiction. That is when I was at school, I thought of myself as, as, as one day being a writer, but I hadn't got anything to write about then. So I went into journalism and, and, and had, had, had actually a very interesting first career. I, I, you know, I worked in various parts of the world. But it was after, it was when I got to Vietnam. I was working there for Reuters and I'd done, I'd done a stint there. And, it, and then it was a matter of either, either staying with Reuters and going to some other, um, you know, possibly interesting place or looking for a job for a newspaper in, on the newspaper or, or doing what I'd actually wanted to do now for some years write fiction. So I so I quit Reuters and went to went to Crete of all places where I had some sort of connection, thinking I would write a book there and see how it went. And that's how it how it actually started. The book I wrote there actually was no good. It was never published. But you actually learn a lot from actually writing a bad book, I think, perhaps more than writing one that's accepted. Um but but that's what actually got me into writing. Yes. <clears throat> yes, and was it anything to do with your post in Vietnam that sort of made you think I want to do this now. Not at all. Only in the sense that I felt I'd, I'd, you know, I'd had some very interesting, interesting stuff to cover. I'd been in Washington during the Kennedy years. I'd been in Cuba and I met Castro and did all those sorts of things. And Vietnam was a big story. I just wondered if I hadn't actually at that time done the best kind of stories there were. And did I want to hang on, or was this a moment to to sort of, uh, you know, break off and write fiction? So, but it wasn't anything that happened to me in Vietnam. No. <clears throat> Okay, good. And then I don't know if that first book you wrote was a historical crime thriller, but that's the area that you now seem to have settled in. Um, what made you choose that particular genre? And I wonder if you actually object to being thought of as a genre writer. No, I don't mind being thought of as a genre writer. And I didn't actually sit down with the idea of saying I'm going to be a genre writer. I got very interested in the First World War. I'd read a lot about it. 
And I, I just got the idea of, in fact, doing it. It, it actually came as a two-pronged idea. One, to actually write a story set around that time involving a man who'd been in the war and come out of it. And the other was to, um, you know, serial killers have been, have been very popular in fiction. And I thought, how about doing a story about a serial killer before that term was actually coined and people didn't really understand it. And so, and so Madden and his, and his superior, Chief Inspector Sinclair, have to figure out what's going on. I thought it was a nice challenge to take on. Yes, exactly. And you have mentioned on your website that there was a scrapbook in your family that was left behind by an uncle who was killed in World War I that also helped to feed into that inspiration for River of Darkness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <clears throat> yes, I can, actually. He was, my, he, was my, he was my father's elder brother. They were both in the war. Um, my, my, my uncle, who had my name, same name as I had, really, was, um, was, was killed in the war. And my father was captured. And the, and the, and the thing is, the uh, telegrams uh, uh, sent to uh, sent to their parents. That, that, this all happened in the same week. So my my uh, grandparents had two telegrams. One of them saying that their elder son was dead, and the other that their younger son was missing. Can you imagine what they must have felt then? You know. Anyway, they put together a terrible. Yeah. Yeah, they was they, they must have felt terrible. And this was common in England. This wasn't just a you know it wasn't just them. Um, they put together a scrapbook which was very touching. There was old photographs of my uncle who was who was rather a sort of, he, who sort of liked um, amateur amateur dramatics. Who was who was uh, something of a joker. Very good cricketer at school apparently. And there were just these very touching family pictures. There were there was there was a letter from his commanding officer saying, "Oh, we we like Rennie so much, and he was such a good chap." He'd actually spent two years in the trenches and survived and came out with his nerves, I think, in bad shape, but. You know, there was such pressure then to sort of do your bit that he volunteered to be an to be a, to be an RAF observer, and he was and, and his plane was shot down and he was killed. That's how he died. Um, and all these all these little notes and bits about him and the tests he had to take as an observer and all the ticks, rather like having a school report, good, you know, good, satisfactory. And um, I, I was I was just very moved by it, and, and it, it it sort of played into the idea I had of writing a book about that time. Yes. The other thing was my father never spoke about the war very much. And this I discovered by reading about the war, but it's actually quite common. When troops came back from the Second World War, they had lots of stories about the war, you know, about what had happened to them, where they'd be. This wasn't so much the case of the First World War, which was so awful, trapped in the trenches for years, and, and the sort of death toll was so awful that men coming back didn't want to talk about it very much. But even more to the point, people back in England didn't want to hear about it. So I think this was part, you know, partly why my father never talked about it at all. Yes, yes. For those not familiar with your protagonist, Detective John Madden, in, in book one, he's clearly suffering from some sort of stress, obviously partly caused by the fact that he lost his wife and daughter, but also battle fatigue. Um, this is something that's various, come under various names, but I wonder if your experiences in Vietnam had also made you a little bit more sensitive to that whole area of um, whatever you call it, post-Vietnam syndrome or... Yes, I see what you mean. No, I don't think so, because that thing in Vietnam, the uh, the uh, post, what's it, PPTSD, it was only, only came up sometime after, later. I would say quite early on in the conflict, 65, 66, all the, all the American... Uh, forces arriving were in fact very fresh and new. I think, you know, the, 
the, the, the sort of elite divisions arrived first, the Marines and the Airborne thing, and, and, that, and that, that, that aspect of the, of the war didn't, didn't arise then, it came later. So the answer is no, it didn't really have any effect on me. I was really, really, you know, really referring to books I'd read about the effect on men who'd come back from the First World War. And, you know, even, even at the time the book is set, my book is set in 1923, there were still thousands of men in hospital being treated for the after effects of what was called, as you know, shell shock or something like that. Then. Yes. And Madden was yeah. one of those cases, but he hadn't needed to go to the hospital. He was a very strong man, strong-willed, but um, he was in bad shape until he met Helen, who who was, was as you know, instrumental in, in sort of helping him and curing him. Yes, yes. And then the next book in the series jumps forward 20 years. Actually, no, no Jenny, you're wrong there, 10 years. It, oh, it, sorry, 10 yes, years, okay. It, it, it's 23 to 33. Oh, that's right. It, it jumped forward to 33 yeah. years. <clears throat> that's right. So it was set between the wars as fascism is on the rise. Mm. That's, that's also breaking with the kind of genre trope where you have a, a detective who then is set in his setting and just takes the next case. You you change his circumstances entirely. He's now left the police force. He's married to Helen. He's a gentleman farmer. So you've got a really different setup for the second story. And that kind of carries on right through the whole series. That was an iconoclastic approach, really, wasn't it, to genre fiction? It, yes, it was. I, yes, I wanted to do something different. I think I, I you know, the the, the, the sort of um, series of detective stories, some of them are very good, of course, but you tend to think that they, they, they sort of tend to live rather in a bubble. It's another case for Inspector So-and-so, and then they, they sort of go through rather familiar routines. I wanted, I wanted to, to place, you know, place these, books, these books in a different historical context each time, and, of course, tying in the second book with the rise of fascism and and all, and all Madden's hatred of war coming to his mind again, and you know, he thinks about these things. And then during the war, when he had to go into the into the home guard for a bit, but but hated putting on uniform. I was playing on that on that sort of trope all the time. Yeah, but but I like the idea of 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 also looking at the English class system, English society, how people behaved, and of course it changes during during the books as they move on. Just as an aside, have you spent much time yourself in England? Yes, I have been. Yes, I have spent quite a lot of time. I actually went there, went there from South Africa and worked, worked in London for, for, for two or three years before I went abroad for Reuters. And then when I came back, I spent time in England. Uh, yes, I know England quite well. And of course, I read a lot about, you know, that, uh, that period that I write about was, was the period covered by books I read uh, as, as a, as a boy at school and, and later. So in some ways, it was very familiar to me. Yes. Now, each of the, there are now five Madden books, but they each reflect quite a different social context and can be read as a standalone work. I get the feeling that you very much enjoy having that bigger canvas to play with. Is that perhaps the journalist at work? Possibly. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I was always interested in that. I'm interested, interested in society. And, and if you write about England, especially during those years, you can't, you can't get away from the class system. So I always, it's always the backdrop to my plays. To, to my books. And um, the thing is, in those books, the, the important thing is to think about how people talk to each other at that time, how they spoke to one another, which is very different from now. As you, as you will have noticed, my books are, are entirely free of four-letter words because people didn't use them very much then, and they certainly never used them in front of women. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. And and this, well, if, if we're talking about the slightly risky, this 
virtually no sex in them either that I can think of anyway, or very little. There's a little sex in the first book because he has a pa- he and him, you know, man and Helen do have a passionate physical attraction for for each other, and there is there is one sex, no two sex scenes in it. Other than that, I didn't have any sex scenes. I didn't want to put them in. I think they're by and large unnecessary these days. If people want sex, they can go online and look at porn. You know. Why read about it? You don't have to read about it in books, particularly, I don't think. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you you started out, what, with an idea of a trilogy or just a single book? How did it evolve? It's very interesting. I started out with the idea of a single book, but when I finished it, I realized I had much more to say about Madden and Helen. I didn't want to leave it there. So I put I put to my publishers the idea of a trilogy, which they were quite happy with. But after I after I after I'd written three, I got I got sort of uh, you know subtle messages from them that, that they'd like more if possible. And I I I got sort of well into into the family into the whole family bit about the madness and the people around them. So I enjoyed writing writing more. You know I don't know how much longer they'll go on to be honest, but uh, they, I have got another one coming out. You know which is finished and in the hands of my publishers now. So is that number six? That will be number six, correct, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because Robert McKee, the script writing guru, has said about historical stories that they need to be applicable to contemporary life. There has to be some theme or chord in them which has some resonation with people in, in their current world. And I think there has been a huge rise in popularity, particularly for Second World War historicals, but even First World War as well. What do you think the appeal is for this generation of, of reading about that period? I think, well, as, as you probably know, it, the, you know, the First World War has been going through a period. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slightly faded away now, which when, when it became very interesting to people in England, particularly in Britain, particularly, and also in America. I, I have a lot of readers in America. They, in some ways, are in, I'm enjoying my books even more because they like reading about that that time in England and the people there. Um, I don't think you necessarily. I don't entirely agree with uh, Robert McKee's thing. I think what 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 the you know the uh, situations in your book have to have to be recognisable to people today. They must understand what what problems the people faced then, how they had you know how they confronted them, and how they relate to their own lives. I think that's important. But they don't necessarily have to have a controlling idea uh, that, that's reflected. I don't know. It's, it's a form of words. Perhaps I sort of partly agree with them, yes. I really try to set these people in the context of their own lives and, and show them dealing with their lives with, with problems that are not that different from problems today. You see, I think the, I think the First World War was a great hinge in history. There was a before and after. And we live in the after still, really, of the First World War, in a sense, you know. Mm. Oh, oh, please expand on that thought a little more. So how do you see that as being the watershed? Oh, um, you know, there was there, there, there's a scene in, in the second book, which, uh, which, I, which I, you know, writers have scenes they particularly like. Whether readers feel the same about them, I don't know. It's when, it's when Sinclair, the, the, you know, Madden's old friend and, 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 and sort of former superior, is talking to the to the man at the Foreign Office, Philip Bain, who's uh, who's in fact an intelligence man, not 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 a diplomat, and and Bain explains how 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 things have changed since the war. He's, and he says, you know, there's there, there, you know there's there's sort of no acting like gentlemen anymore. That everything has changed, and I think the Nazis were a, were a, were a, you know were a symptom of that. Up to the First World War, there was a kind of gentleman's way of fighting wars. You know, one's read stories about how when 
pilots were shot down. They were given honorable funerals by the other side and this sort of thing. All that's gone away. It's become a much more savage and brutal world. So that's the hinge I think. Yes. People behave better to you know to each other because of the before the war. But I think the war was so terrible it it actually changed something in human nature. I, I haven't actually said that in any of my books, but that's what I that's what I feel. No, it's funny that you're referring to Bain because when I was reading that book, I just it's one of those funny things. You know how when you read, you try and anticipate what might be coming, and I became quite convinced that Bain was the um, serial killer. And that he was somehow you were <laughs> and he was somehow um yeah, you know, using the his yeah. his role as as a way of sort of hiding away. And for I, I carried on with this thought for quite a few chapters, was rather reluctant to just to to follow you <laughs> into the into the <laughs> chap out and the hiding out in the fields. But yeah, it's funny how sometimes and I think maybe even it's quite an interesting device that you kind of almost a little bit of a red herring that you kind of leave a few thoughts open for the reader that that might be how it's going to go and then it goes in a quite a different direction. But That's it. This is, is actually quite a standard device that, that we, we mystery writers use. You you sort of like to set up possible other other candidates and he was an obvious one. He seemed like just the sort of man who might have a have a twisted sexual life. Yes, you know? he, yes, he did. And, yeah. uh, but uh, in, but in, in fact, he was absolutely straight. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite fun to do that, actually. And then you you sort of pull, you sort of pull the rug from under the readers. Yes, that's right. Mm, yeah. So how do you see Madden as having evolved over the series? I mean, in, in book six, what um, age has he got to in book six? I've, I've always been, been careful about the age. Uh, let me work it out. I worked him out in sort of early 30s after... So in book, book six, yes, I'm now in 1952, so that's 30 years. Yes, he's, he's in his early 60s. I put him about 61, 62 yes. now, you see. He's, uh, but he's, he's still very fit. I've always kept him very fit. He's one of those, one of those people who, who sort of luckily doesn't get, you know, doesn't get overweight and everything. He's kind of has a, has a sort of vigorous life outdoors and he's in good shape. The old chief inspector is getting quite old, and he, he in, this, in, the, in this latest book is really – Feeling, feeling, feeling his years, you know. I, and I use all that about how you feel. And of course, I like having the younger people in the books too. I like the daughter. I use her quite a lot, Lucy, who's a, probably like her mother was when she was a young woman. That's to say, very willful and strong-willed, and wanting, wanting to do things her way. And it's a nice. I can play it well against Madden, who adores her. Of yes. Course, and she, and is putty and is putty in her fingers one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell just by the way you're talking about them that you really enjoy these characters. Yes, I enjoyed them very much writing about them. They become real. The thing about writing is, is that you become, uh, is, is that these, these people start filling your life while you're doing the book and they become almost like real people, you know. They're in a way your company uh, and you sort of, and you wonder what they're going to do next. You, you're sort of not always sure and you have to sort of, See how the story evolves. Yes, that's right. Look, turning from specific books to a wider look at your career, has there been one thing you've done more than any other that's been the secret to your success as an author? You know, I can't. I really don't. I don't know how to answer that, Jenny. It's. Um, I, I. I think that I. I write. You know, as you know, my my books have a slightly old-fashioned tone to them, and that's and that's quite deliberate. I wanted them. To sound like the kind of books that might at that period by a writer, rather than to, rather than to give them a, a sort of modern um, modern modern sound at all. 
Uh, so I can't think of any any single reason why that. I think people like reading about 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 periods of history that are that are quite recent, you know, are quite recent and can relate to. Mind you, they also also like reading about earlier things. I, for instance, love Hilary Mantel's books about about uh, you know the Tudors, Henry VIII, and I find them absolutely engrossing and wonderful. Yeah. Yes, and and even I mean I've just in the last few days become aware. I don't know if you know an author, Lindsay Davis, who's done a series of mystery novels set in ancient Rome. She's got this hero Falco. Yes, I do. I, yeah, I've actually met her once, once or twice. I think, and I like I. I you know, I read two or three of the early books and really liked them. I haven't read any more, not because I went off, but I just, you know, they're, they're, you know, there are so many books to read. You only read so many. But I think she's very good. Yes, that's right. So I must say that I enjoy being able to jump back to a period like that as well. It's um, really fun. So They, um, you know, have to be done very well, as she does, uh, to, to actually make them work. Some, some, of the, some of the ones pushing, you know, pushing detectives back in the old days don't work very well for me, but those do. Those work very well. Yes, yes. And you mentioned earlier about some of your postings with Reuters. And uh, I mean, I was just starting out in journalism in those years, and it seemed to me to be just the most amazing thing to be in Washington during the Kennedy years or to be in Saigon at the start of the Vietnam War. Have you ever been tempted to, to set novels in those periods and, and actually draw on that personal experience? No, I haven't actually. Done it. One of the reasons is um, I think if I did it, I would do it in a in a Graham Greene like way. Who I must who, who when I was a young man was was was, the, was my actual hero writer. I can I can I can I can tell you about that in a minute if you like. Um, yes. I I, uh, I wouldn't do that. I think you have to know know another culture really well to to uh, set a book in it. For instance, I wouldn't set a book in America, though I know America quite well from my movie, but I wouldn't do that because I think I'd get so many things wrong. Um, what I what I what I have done 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 a couple of times. What I'm or rather what I'm doing in a book I'm working now, which is not a modern book, is bringing in a, a young American to to Britain, London, and having and seeing the way she reacts uh, to 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 being in a in a country which is both familiar and not entirely familiar with her. I think you can do do it that way if you see what I mean. But I wouldn't. I would yes. be. I'd be very hesitant about actually setting any books. Even though Green, Green did them brilliantly, but he always did them in a certain way with with the with the with the wonderful characters he had. who were always fighting with God in one way or another. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And nothing that would be based in South Africa from your. No, I wouldn't. You know, I left it a long time ago. I don't know the country well anymore. Uh, I just decided I always wanted to escape from South Africa. I, I, there was a kind of dead hand in life there. I, I lived, I lived during the apartheid times there, and I didn't. Um, I, I, I felt this was not where where sort of real life was going on. Of course, it was in a different way. I just wanted to get away, and I got away. And I, I sort of go back to visit. I have a, to see my sister and members of my family is quite regularly there. But no, I couldn't write a book set in South Africa now. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, far too much out of touch to do that. Yes, that's probably one country that has changed hugely in the last forty years. Utterly, probably unrecognisable. Uh, it is well, it, it it is unrecognisable. I like the way it's unrecognisable. I like the way that, that that now you know Johannesburg. I don't like Johannesburg at all, but it's buzzing with with sort of energy, and it's and it's lovely to see all the mixing of races. This is one of the things I like about London. Now, when I first went there, it was a, almost a Billy White town. There were blacks around, but you didn't see them very much. Now, now, if you travel the tubes in London, anywhere, it's what a what a mix of 
mix of ethnic mix it is. I love it, actually. I think it's terrific. Mm. Yes, yes. Mm. So just reverting a little bit to the, the Robert McKee idea, a weenie bit, about a controlling idea, there's the other idea about a core story that t- writers tend to write the same story in different guises. I wonder if you've got any um, any agreement with that, and if you have, what would your core story be, do you think? Yes, I, I, I know that. It's, it's often said, you know, you know, writers write the same story. There's some truth in it, but I can't think of a of a core story. I mean, if you're writing mysteries, then you have in mind, obviously, a mystery. You know, you, you set up a situation where one or more people is murdered and you want to find out who did and that sort of thing. So, but that's just, a, that's just the framework of the book. I don't have in mind that sort of core story, I don't think. No, I'm not, I, don't, I'm, no I think I can't really give you an answer on that. I don't, I don't feel I have that idea. Really. May, maybe something like that um, justice somehow is always, always found in one way or another that people get, I don't know, you know. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I'm not sure justice is always found. I don't think, you know, I, I think I think there's the law and then there is justice and, and the law doesn't always reflect justice, I don't think. I think, you know, justice is something else. Um, yes. Madden, Madden has a horror, has in fact a horror of violence. And, um, and the, the interesting thing about him as a character is that, as, as, as the chief inspector points out in this last book I've written, he's talking to he's talking to his daughter. He's talking to Madden's daughter and saying that, of course, your father was was a, was a tremendously good detective, but he always but he hated actually anything to do with with sort of violent death and everything. So for him, there was always a tug, tug, a tug in different directions. Um, that that that, uh, to my mind, makes him interesting. You know? mm. Yes, yeah. Um, the series is called "The Joys of Binge Reading" because I was taken by this idea of how we are so attracted now to the instant uh, gratification thing. And people buy digital books online and and read a whole series over a week in the same way that they consume Netflix on TV. I don't know if you've ever been that sort of binge reader, but, but what are your reading tastes? And are there people that you might have binge read in the past? Yes, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was binge reading, but I, I sort of have. I, I, I absolutely have had had favourite uh, writers in the past. The as a child, my absolute hero was Kipling. The Jungle Books were were my were my bible. I thought they were wonderful. You know, he also happened to be a terrific writer, Kipling. So that was a good start. As I got older and, and sort of grew up, and then you know, you know, finished school and everything, I, I became a great fan of Ebon Waugh's books. I loved them. I read them all. And I read them all several times. I think he was a superb writer, even if he was a peculiar man. <laughs> and then I moved on to Graham Greene, and I, I would say Graham Greene was is is probably the writer I, I admired I admired most of the longest period. I thought as a storyteller, and as a way uh, as a way of 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 describing place and character in the most economical way. He was a complete master. And if you read him, I don't know if you've read him at all, Jenny, but if you read him again now, some of the, you know, some, some of his best books, you'll be amazed what a, what a good writer he was. And when I first went went and wrote my first book in Crete, I think it was kind of very sub-Graham Green kind of kind of thing. I had to get him out of my system. <laughs> and I managed to do that with this book. I, I, I've, I've, I've never been tempted into that again, but... Uh, I thought he was a, he was a wonderful writer in his way, and, and that's nothing to do do with his views about religion, which which were which were less interesting to me. It was just as a craftsman, I thought he was terrific. I managed to meet him once 
and have lunch with him. But he was very, uh, and we talked about Havana because, of course, Our Man in Havana is a lovely book. You know, he said there. And we talked a little bit about Havana, and I'd been there, but I couldn't get any, I couldn't really get any anything out of him much. But anyway, that's my Graham Green story for you. Um, as I say, I like, I like Hilary Mantle very much, and I was a huge fan of Penelope Fitzgerald. I thought she was. She was the best writer in England that, uh, when she was alive. Last, she's no longer with us. But um, um, I, as I grow older, I read less less of modern fiction. I read quite a lot of biography and history, and I reread a lot of you know old books, classics, and other books that I'd liked in the past. Because I think it's quite a quite a feature of growing older that you do this. Um, anyway, that's my that's my reading. Great. Um, yes. Look, I read Grand Green so long ago that I have really almost forgotten so it would be great to go back to them do tell us just about the circumstances of that lunch how did it come about <laughs> well it's very peculiar i have a i have a i have a, i have a cousin who is an actress married to an agent and the agent had got got the rights for um for uh for, for one one of green's last books which called the honorary consul it wasn't one of his best incidentally it got it got the movie rights through a through a director who knew green well and he needed to say, I made I made some money out of a book I wrote years ago called Snatch. I, it, it, it was bought for a movie. So he asked me if I could lend him some money to get hold of the script, which I did unwisely. Never lend anyone any money for <laughs> buying movies. You never get it back. But and he said, "What can I do in return?" I said, "Well, I like to have lunch with Dean." <laughs> so <laughs> me, me and the director, whose name was Peter Peter something, I can't remember. We had we had we had lunch in in Soho, and there was Graham Greene, very tall. Rather elegantly dressed and unusually dressed, somewhat silent. Uh, you couldn't get much out of him. But uh, anyway, I had lunch with my hero, so there it is. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Circling around from the beginning again, at this stage in your career, if you were starting out all over again, what, if anything, would you change? Not much, I think. I wouldn't have started writing fiction earlier than I did because really I didn't have anything to write about. You know, I think you have to, you have to learn a bit about life and experience it a bit before you can, if you're thinking of writing about fiction. And I think being a journalist does, it does actually get you around the world. You meet some very interesting, odd and unusual people. I mean, I could tell you about how I went, how I was taken to a baseball game by Castro, but I won't bore you with that now. But oh, least, no, that sounds great. <laughs> Yes, and things like that. And you meet you meet you meet a hell of different people. What you want to be if you're a writer, I think, is you've got to be curious, always curious, and you've got to be a good listener and of course a good observer. But though all those things are also have to do with being a journalist. But in fact but in fact writing journalism and writing fiction are two very different things. And I had to, as it were, unlearn the craft that I'd learned as a journalist and, and, and get into the business of writing fiction, which is very different. How would you in a in a nutshell explain the difference in, in your experience? What what was the difference that you had to take an approach between your journalism and your fiction? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I was a very particular kind of journalist in the sense that I was a wire service journalist working for Reuters. Reuters wanted wanted the news, news reported clearly, you know, quickly, clearly, so that everyone could understand it. And, and stories were crafted in a certain way. The, the, the opening paragraph had to seize, seize the reader's attention. And then, and then you, and then you went through the story as it were, and and summed up in the end. It was rather like learning, to, you know, learning to make a table or a, or a lampshade mm-hmm. or something like that. You, but it was quite. Once you once you get into the business of writing fiction, you're actually aiming 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 for something quite different. You're looking for mood, character, uh, and and the story, of course. 
and you've got to blend all those together. It's actually quite different from journalism. Yeah, yeah. So what is next for Rennie the writer? You mentioned that you're working on something that doesn't involve Madden. Can you talk about that? No, I wanted I wanted a break from Madden. I did this 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 book, which is in the hands of hands of my publishers, which incidentally you might like to know is called The Decent End of Death. From the, from the Chesterton poem, you know, about, you know, before the Romans came to Rye. Oh, Did yes. You get that as- yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the last verse is, what is it? I, can, I can repeat it to you, I think. Uh, uh, My friends, we will not come again to ape an ancient rage or stretch the folly of our youth to be the shame of age, but walk with clearer eyes and ears this path that wandereth and see undrugged in evening light the decent end of death. Ah, <laughs> uh, terrific. It refers to age, growing older and everything, which is not to say that either Madden or, or, or Mr. Sinclair necessarily die, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of getting over, you know, yes. closer close yes. to the end. Yes. Um, sorry, what was your question again? I rolled so, so the one that isn't about Madden. You, you oh, it isn't about Madden. Yeah, this is one This is one that is actually contemporary. I wanted to do a contemporary book, you know, slightly, slightly prompted by the idea that the world is so horrible at the moment, at least the people running it, that I ought to try and try and write a book that was, uh, that was of our time and everything. And I had an idea, I had an idea of mine for some time and put it aside because I couldn't get what, I, I, I couldn't find what, what Hitchcock used to call the MacGuffin, you know, the thing that set the story going, which yes. is either a murder yeah. or diamond just stolen or something like yeah. that. And then I got the idea of the McGuffin, which I won't tell you because it, it comes at you just because as as the book is 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 going, you actually don't learn what it is for and, until you're quite well into the book. So I won't tell you what. No, it is. don't. Perhaps you it one day and you'll find out. <laughs> I think you're very brave to write contemporary. I mean, I've just been doing some historical mystery fiction, but I'm I'm a bit scared about trying to do contemporary because even at, at my stage, I'm not so confident about how to write much younger people with the way that they use social media and all the rest. It's it's a world that um is is quite hard to reach back into, isn't it? <laughs> don't you don't have to tell me it's why it's one of the reasons I I I've forgotten to tell you that one of the reasons I wrote back in time was because I realized that the check Technological change and 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 behaviour among people prompted by social media and everything is so quick now that by the time you write it, it's out of date and everything. So I've stayed away from it completely because I, a I'm older and and b I you know part of the words a complete mystery to me. But I thought of a way of doing this book of actually avoiding that. Not I mean I don't. They people have smartphones and and all the rest of it, but actually staying away from social media. And everything by actually devising a different plot. But I'd absolutely take your point entirely. I have stayed away from it for that reason too. And if it doesn't work, this book, I shall probably, I shall, I shall probably sit down and write another Madden. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's wonderful that you still are. You, you, are you going to be writing as long as you possibly can? It's something you just love to do. Well, it's also, you know, it's what you do, isn't it? You get up in the morning and you have another paragraph to write, another page to write. You probably the same, are you? Do you have that yes. feeling? Yeah, I was going to ask you if, if you. If I'm no longer doing it, what's what's the point of getting up anymore? You know. <laughs> I imagine you're also someone who doesn't believe in writer's block. I do, but I believe it can happen. Actually, I, I had quite a long block actually between writing my first book, then I had a second book, and then another block. It's and don't ask me why, because people have asked me, and I don't have an answer. You know. Yes, I do believe it, but um, I don't know exactly what it is. You just don't know what you're going to write or what you want yes. to write. Um, I think I think it does. It doesn't exist for me now. 
anymore. I can't see myself being blocked anymore. I'm too old for it. If I want to sit down and write something, I'll write it. It may, it may work. It may not work. Maybe it's the fear of something that something is not going to work and you have to overcome that fear. I don't know. But I don't have it anymore. You know, I mean, some books that people like, some they don't. So, so, so what else? You know, that's the way things are. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I keep, I'll keep on writing as long as I can. Wonderful. So you did mention before we started chatting here that you're not really one for social media yourself. But if people want to follow you, they can go to your website, can't they? Yes, they can. It's like, I did it with the Authors Guild in America. So it's, it's, it, I think if you if you think if they if they Google my name, they'll get my website. We'll put the link in. What I do with these interviews is that I turn each one. We get a full transcript that's published online, and we mention all the links to the authors and the people that have been discussed so that people can go to that as a resource and find the links if they're interested in following through. So we'll make sure that your website is there for those who might be interested. Okay, thank you. That's very nice. Good. So we've come to the end of our time, Rennie. We've we've had a lovely chat. I so appreciate it. And um, I love your stories. We could talk all night, I think, actually. It was very nice talking to you, Jenny, and good luck with your writing. I didn't I haven't didn't know about your name as a writer, but I am aware of it now and I shall I shall get hold of a book of yours quite soon. Oh look, that's so sweet. Look, I mean I'm an I'm a fiction writer as of September the first, so it's very new. Ah, okay, okay. I'll keep an eye. What's the name? Title? Um, the title is Poisoned Legacy for the first one. I saw that on your email. I saw it on your email. Yes, okay. Very nice talking to you anyway. Lovely. Thanks a lot. We'll catch up soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.